This is Macro Horizons, episode 75, Wave Worries, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 29th. And as we come to grips with the COVID-15, yes, that 15, our appreciation for Elastic has increased exponentially. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had very little economic data on which to base trading direction. But what we did see is an increase in COVID-19 cases, which really helped to refine expectations for the pace of the pandemic and put into context some of the price action that we have seen recently, particularly in equity markets. Now, the Treasury market did benefit from a modest bid, a classic flight to quality, but the bigger dynamic really did play out in the case count for COVID-19 infections. What we saw was the U.S. hit a record daily count in the middle of the week, which increases, at least on the margin, the probability that there will be another round of lockdowns. Now, we have seen some governors, notably the governor of Texas, delay the implementation of some of the reopenings of that state's economy. Houston has been the focus, and we would expect it to be over the course of the next week or two as the market gets a better sense for the next wave of the pandemic. Now, we're cautious against interpreting the recent spike in COVID-19 cases as a second wave. Rather, we are characterizing it as an extension of the first wave. After all, these are regions that were largely spared by the onset of the pandemic in the U.S., which found its epicenter in the Northeast. As the Northeast has flattened the curve and begun to move forward via reopenings and reengaging of the labor force, we would expect a not dissimilar timeline to play out as the virus makes its way across the country. Now, this offers little solace for those in the market who might have viewed the first half as containing all of the pandemic fallout and the beginning of the rebuilding process. If anything, it suggests that the headwinds will linger throughout the year and we won't have a truer sense of the damage done to the domestic economy until the end of the year. Another key takeaway from the week just passed is that there remains plenty of demand for Treasury supply. There was a solid reception to fives and sevens, and as the last supply events for the second quarter, we're content to call them successful, particularly given the outright level of yields and the looming increase in deficit spending and therefore Treasury issuance going forward. So clearly there's been other things going on in the world besides just politics, but it is an election year after all. And based on the increase in the number of questions we've been receiving about how the election plays out, 
it's fair to say that the presidential election will quickly rise on the list of themes guiding markets. Yeah, one would think that it should, although given the performance of the real economy and how a sitting president has historically fared in terms of re-election odds, it sounds like the Democrats have a reasonable shot at the White House and potentially more in terms of Congress. So with that backdrop, I think it's worth exploring what type of political initiatives one might anticipate with the transition. Historically, one tends to think of the Republican Party as being more pro-business and fiscally conservative. Now, many years ago, that might have translated into budget hawks. But in the current environment, there does seem to be a willingness to increase deficit spending and rely heavily on the Treasury market for funding. It doesn't follow intuitively, however, that a Democratic White House would be the exact opposite. One should expect changes on the tax front, presumably an increase in the corporate tax rate, but a decreased reliance on Treasury funding seems unlikely, at least from my take. And while certainly elections, there's an argument that it's a little more emotive than rational in some ways, there is some context that we can provide on what potential policy changes might occur. You know, one that I've been discussing with clients is what Biden's proposed for a corporate tax hike, and he does propose raising the corporate tax rate, is not back to where we were in 2016. It's actually not really even close. Instead, he would just move the corporate tax rate up to 28%. So one way to think about the last, call it four or five years, is even in a Biden White House, it still translates into a lower effective corporate tax rate going forward. Now, the problem with that, of course, is dynamic consistency. Okay, they move the corporate tax rate up to 28% now. Will they do it again in the future? Will they move it back towards something like 35 40%? It's a little bit hard to get the sense of whether there will be follow-on tax heights going forward, but I do think it's at least valuable context to remember that even what the moderate Democrats are proposing is still a net effective corporate tax cut compared to where we were in 2016. The other nuance worth considering is that part of the GOP's big tax reform was to simplify and reduce some of the proverbial loopholes that were in the tax code. So I could easily envision a situation where the headline corporate tax number doesn't bring us back to the pre-Trump levels, but it still ends up being a significant revenue generator, if nothing else. And almost regardless of who ends up taking the White House or both houses of Congress, the fact of the matter is we should still expect to see very elevated treasury supply going forward, with the caveat that the Fed's QE program will take the edge off some of those really large figures. And this week was a great example of the impact that these record large auction sizes are having on pricing. We saw great sponsorship for the front end, fives in particular, even though the biggest auction ever also showed its lowest stopout yield, which circles back to one of our core tenants, which is that... Sure, supply can be worth a few basis points here or there, but in terms of the durable outright level of yields, that's up to global growth and inflation. And the longer run financial situation in the United States, notwithstanding, the reality is the funding situation for the next few months is largely going to be determined by not only these increases in coupon sizes, which are somewhat on a steady state track at this point, but 
do we get another stimulus program? You know, this is something that's been debated, whether there will be another $1,200 check in the mail, whether some of these unemployment perks are extended. And the question about will we see a pullback in bill issuance? Will we see a slowdown in some of the extraordinary supply that the markets had to digest over the next few months? Partially, and more so than some of these longer run factors, is going to come down to that next stimulus package, whether it occurs, how big it will be. And one of the things that's kind of come out of this week, in my opinion, has been a resumption and acceleration in some of the viral spread, especially in some of the Sunbelt states. Logically, then, I would argue that increases the political will for another stimulus program and raises the probability that we'll continue to see larger deficits than we had previously thought. It also speaks to the relevance of the Fed's decision to not only lead with an extraordinarily accommodative monetary policy stance, but also project that that will stay in place at least through 2022, if not beyond. So in that context, as we have continued to lament, the front end of the market remains anchored to monetary policy expectations, the curve simply a directional trade, and a lot of it is beholden to the price action in risk assets, most notably the equity market. Equities do seem to have come off the recent highs in a period of consolidation and give back of the gains, which is very consistent, as you point out, John, with this idea that there has been an acceleration of COVID-19 cases that has led the market away from this idea that it was going to be a very quick pandemic. Yeah, and this period of modest give back, sort of choppy trading in stocks, has still left the major equity indices well off those levels we set back in late March. And I think this is a representation of the fact that these pickups in different areas around the country, I think, have been largely anticipated. There's a lot of charts going around comparing COVID cases in the US to those in the UK, France, Germany, etc. But I think a nuanced point that makes the US somewhat different is simply the geography and the size of the country. So the way I'm sort of thinking about it is while the Northeast has gone through its first wave of the pandemic, and broadly speaking, the statistics remain encouraging in that part of the country, during the peak in that region in March, April, and May, we didn't really see a comparable pickup in some of the states that are experiencing this pickup now. So given how big the United States is geographically and the spread out nature of some of the larger population centers... While I agree this is wave two for the country as a whole, I would actually classify it as the first wave for places like Texas and Houston in particular. Well, and that does also raise the risk that if this is just an extension of the first wave, the bigger concern about a true second wave isn't really going to come back on the radar until this fall. Now, that's consistent with what the health experts were saying early in the pandemic, and I guess it follows somewhat intuitively. What remains to be seen is, A, whether or not it actually comes to fruition, the second wave, and B, how willing the market is to retrade a very similar dynamic, especially if we have, as a nation, developed pandemic protocols which can flatten the curve if and when it comes back. One thing on the timing that is going to gain more and more attention as we get closer to September is some of the Fed's crisis programs are set to roll off at the end of September. Now, will they pull back on some of those special purpose vehicles? 
if take-up is extremely low, kind of what we're seeing now, but there's still the lingering risk of a second wave leading to another spike in volatility and tightening of financial conditions. I don't really have a strong prior as to their reaction function in that situation, but it is worth flagging that at this point, we're within three months of the moment where the Fed begins to roll off, at least in theory, some of those crisis facilities. Well, John, I think you bring up a great point because the payroll protection program is set to expire at the end of October. And so the assumption being that a number of workers have remained out of the ranks of the unemployed because of this program, if we're faced with a second wave at the same time that PPP runs off, it will be fascinating to see how Washington deals with that. If it ends up being an extension of the program, especially considering that this will occur right about the same time that the presidential election is decided. And as we know, such an outcome could potentially change the outcome for Congress as the transition comes into focus. So to change gears a little bit, we've talked a lot about the election. And, you know, when I look back at the first half of 2020, the first quarter was very, very much characterized by building risk of a virus leading to a total blowout in financial markets and basically unprecedented shutdown of the economy. Then, almost to the day, Q1 ends and the equity market begins to rally. Q2 is this moment where stocks return almost or actually to near all-time highs. We start to see a flattening or outright sharp declines in some of the case curves, and things start to reopen. What is Q3's narrative going to be? What is the big thematic thing that's going to happen? Is it going to be election-based, or is there something lurking in the shadows that could drive financial markets that hasn't yet come to the forefront of thought? The question is essentially, what is the unknown that isn't on the market's radar at this point? So I think it's safe to say that elections will come back into the limelight during the course of the third quarter, as will the pace of rebuilding and re-engaging the labor market. But there's also the trade war, which some of the rhetoric has increased recently. That's not a new risk, but one that might be renewed as the third quarter gets underway, as well as simply how far and how deep the extension of the first wave of the pandemic is going to be. I think that's one of the unknowns that has made itself very clear within the last week. If we find ourselves in a situation in mid-July where it appears that the case counts have peaked and are on the decline, I think it's safe to say that the first full wave of the pandemic will presume to have run its course in the U.S. At that point, where else will market participants focus their attention? One of the big risks in my mind is the perceived recovery of the labor market, especially ahead of the June jobs numbers that we get this week. Obviously, the 10 million plus surprise in the May figures really sort of re-embolden the V-shaped recovery camp. But in the event that that pace doesn't keep up or undermines the narrative of a speedy recovery back to where we were, should the realities of a long, drawn-out period of very high unemployment take hold, I think there is a risk that some in the market are underestimating the chances of a period of long, drawn-out unemployment that will weigh on growth as a whole through the balance of 2020 and honestly into 2021. That is certainly consistent with our understanding of the focus of the Fed at this point. While inflation or the lack of inflation is always going to be a concern for the committee, given the staggering unemployment rate at the moment, 
it's difficult to imagine a situation where the Fed would try to step away from the more significant programs of QE, both in Treasuries and in BS, as well as some of the new supportive programs in ancillary markets before the unemployment rate has fallen to more normal levels. Now, obviously, we're not going to get to the 2019 levels anytime soon, but trajectory matters. And so the reemployment of the labor force as the domestic economy continues to reopen and we drift towards whatever a new normal is, is going to be the primary driver for monetary policy makers, certainly over the next few quarters. Well, one thing's for sure. The next two quarters cannot possibly be as long as the last two. Wait, what? The holiday-shortened week ahead offers a variety of economic inputs that will help define trading in the Treasury market, the biggest and most relevant one being the June employment report. The consensus is currently looking for an increase of 3 million jobs in non-farm payrolls and a decrease in the unemployment rate to 12.5%. Now, this continues to assume that April did mark the lows for the domestic economy in terms of the realized data, and that will be an important premise to evaluate as the third quarter gets underway. Let us not forget we also see consumer confidence as well as the pre-employment proxies such as Challenger, ADP, and the ISM manufacturing employment component, all of which will help to further refine expectations for Thursday morning's release. Now there's an early close on Thursday and Friday the markets will be completely closed in observance of Independence Day. So we expect that the bulk of the trading activity will occur on effectively Tuesday afternoon until late morning on Thursday. Now, this is relevant given that it's not only month end on Tuesday, but it's also quarter end and the end of the first half. There's been a lot of chatter about the relative performance of equities versus fixed income and what that implies for rebalancing flows. On the margin, we would expect that this will be a net positive for treasuries and a net negative for domestic equities. Now, whether or not these flows develop into a longer term trend will be a function of exactly how far the price action itself moves. So we could envision a situation in which treasuries rally through some of the local extremes, particularly in 10-year yields, anything below 60 basis points, or equities sell off through the 200-day moving average, which in the S&P 500 comes in at roughly 3,020. So these are levels that we will be watching, and any breach might in and of itself become an event, although there are no fundamentals per se behind the focus of these flows around the end of the month. We also do hear from Powell and Mnuchin, as well as see the FOMC minutes. We don't expect any grand revelations to come in terms of monetary policy for the foreseeable future. The Fed has made it very clear that they intend to keep rates at zero at least until 2023, and frankly, given the experience of the last financial crisis, and frankly, given the experience of the last financial crisis, we would expect that rates will be on hold and no attempts toward normalization will be made until 2025 or beyond. Again, we'll be the first to concede that this recession is unlike any recession that we have seen in the past, 
if for no other reason than the pace and severity. And so as a result, we would expect market participants, along with monetary policymakers, to have a much better sense of the shape of the recovery as 2020 comes to an end. That leaves us with two more quarters of uncertainty, augmented, of course, by the unknown surrounding the presidential election. And as a result, we continue to see the range trade in treasuries as the most relevant guiding factor going forward with a nod to the importance of risk assets, notably domestic equities, as investor sentiment continues to reflect the updated macro outlook. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as a bit of Friday encouragement, if Bob Dylan can release a new album at 79, there's hope for us all. Even if the title, Rough and Rowdy Ways, might imply reflection deep into the past. After all, someone had to deliver an anthem for the pandemic. Who better? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. 
Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.